Good morning. Our scripture reading comes from Matthew, the sixth chapter, starting at the 25th verse and following. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the fields, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you a little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, today is the last day. If you were in our Bible classes this morning, and uh, you were probably reminded that today is the last day for the, the series that we've been doing uh, for the past 13 uh, 14 weeks on uh, the, the spiritual disciplines and the habits and the practices that help us to draw near to God. And uh, uh, the staff and I have, have been so encouraged by the feedback that we have received from so many of you about the, the practicality, the, 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 uh, the usefulness of this study, and the ways that you have already been blessed, even in sort of the beginning days of, of, of some of you of doing some of these practices on a daily basis, how you've already been blessed by it. And I want to thank all of the teachers that went uh, beyond the call of duty, meeting on Wednesday nights each week over here in the gathering and going over uh, the best ways, the examples, the, 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 the crux of the matter when it came to these spiritual disciplines, and went, really went the extra mile in, in making sure that they were... Uh, well prepared and had ample examples on how to how to live this kind of a life and uh, before we pray I also want to thank Douglas Brown and his his uh, adult education crew for all of the work that they did not only with the insight seminar back in in January and Chris Altrock coming from Memphis Tennessee to spend the weekend with us and introducing to us uh, a lot of these spiritual disciplines, and also uh, having authored the book, supplying that book for us. But Doug and his crew, they, they just have done such a, a marvelous job. Um, we're going to continue, though, on Sunday mornings going through the Sermon on the Mount because of a, a couple of weeks of, of uh, having to miss because of Mother's Day and guest speakers and things like that. We're going to continue with the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, as we have been talking about it, describes that life that all of these disciplines are helping us to move into. And so as we continue this morning with the end of chapter 6, 
Let's bow our heads, let's pray, and ask God to bless us as we continue this trajectory, not just for today, but for all of life, the rest of our life, for all of our days, in drawing near to God and being transformed into the image of Jesus. Father, thank you from the bottom of our hearts, not only for the salvation that you have given us, which is the forgiveness of our sins, but thank you for the salvation that has come to us, that is saving us from ourselves. And the people that we were when we were alienated, not only in our behavior, but even in our thinking and in our hearts, when we were alienated from you. And not only have you brought us back into relationship with you by giving us the righteousness of your son Jesus as he has taken our sins upon him and paying the penalty for our crimes against your kingdom, but you have also, Father, given us the great gift of your spirit and of your word, and of the church, and of exemplars of the faith, Father, that we are surrounded by, to be able to move out of this old life, to take off the old life with its old thinking and its old behaviors, like we take off worn-out clothing, and to clothe ourselves with Christ, and to think about all of these noble, beautiful, kingdom-driven Ways of thinking that Brad reminded us of out of Philippians 4. We want to be salt and we want to be light. And we know, Father, that that this is what we endeavor and commit our life to. But we also know that it is unachievable without your help. And so we pray, Father, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, um, you know, back into this series out of the Sermon on the Mount that we're calling uh, a beautiful disruptive presence. That when we become like Jesus and we emulate Jesus, not not just in what we do, but in all of our affections, in, in the way that we see things, in the way that we speak to people, we become this beautiful disruptive presence in a world that is full of a lot of chaos. And because we've been out of it for a couple of weeks, it, it's probably a really good for us to do a bit of review, a reminder that when Jesus began his public ministry, if you go to Matthew chapter 4, you find Jesus beginning to preach before he actually preaches in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And when we look at what it is that Jesus is doing, there's there's a lot of healing, a lot of activity in terms of healing people. Uh, There's raising people from the dead. There's the miracles that are taking place. But Jesus is also talking about the need for humans to repent That means to change the direction of our life and to move, not continue moving away from the kingdom, to live in a different kingdom, but to move into God's kingdom and to live a different way. He says also you need to believe the good news, you need to believe the gospel, and he begins to talk about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom, when he begins to talk about the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount becomes for us this really succinct, articulate explanation of what life as a disciple of Jesus in the kingdom of God looks like. When you are in the kingdom of God, the reign of God is supreme in your life. The kingdom of God, as Jesus talked about it, is when God's reign over his creation and over his creatures is happening to such an extent that the creation and the creatures begin to flourish. And when the blessings of being in the kingdom of God of repenting and finding our life going into the, in the direction of God, away from God, when those blessings of the kingdom that are on the inside 
become to move out into the way that we speak, the way we see people, the way that we, we use our resources. Jesus says that we become like salt and light. Salt people, just by the quality of their life, put a stop to the, the decay that is in the world. Light people, Jesus says you're salt and light. He says, as light people, by the quality of our lives, Wherever we go, we just dispel the darkness in this world by just showing up. When Jesus began to talk village and village and city and city and all over the place, all over Israel, he began to to describe a different kind of religious life than the ones that they had seen modeled before them. Christ would even go to the extent to say in verse 20 that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, this is what that life looks like. He begins by talking about anger. He says, anger in all of its forms of of contempt and disdain and the will to harm another human being, God has removed that from your heart. And the temptation to reduce humans sexually to a consumer good and thus objectify them, is removed in light of the way that God sees all human beings. And it's about, as a disciple of Jesus, learning to love not just those that can love you back, but also to love your enemies and to pray for those who seem bent on making your life miserable. It's a life that is authentic, uh, in an authentic, genuine way, it is spiritual and not just a facade or a show of spirituality. It is a life that is so apparent that God is what is treasured more than anything else. And that transformation into salt and light continues in the text that we're going to look at this morning that Curtis just read about worry and anxiety. And if I were to give you a, maybe a summary statement of everything we're going to say about the kingdom of God and worry and our life in this community in San Antonio, it would be something like this. There should be a noticeable lack of worry and anxiety in the life of a disciple of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus go into the community. They come into the family of God. They go into the community as the people of God, as a non-anxious presence. Three times in our text, Jesus says, don't worry. And the reason he says it three times is because Jesus is, knows that worry is not our friend, that anxiety is not our friend. He says in verse 25, do not be worried about your life. In verse 31, he says, do not worry. In verse 34, he says, do not worry about tomorrow. And while Jesus may detest worry because of what it does to human beings, he loves worriers. Now that's kind of some good news early this morning. What Christ knows about anxiety is that worry and anxiety have an infinite capacity to murder joy in your heart. Worry and anxiety seems to have this infinite capacity to be uh, to, to make you worried and concerned about things that are so polarized and far apart that, that it doesn't even make sense to be worried about them. For instance, you may be worried, will I ever have a kid? And then at the same time you're worried, If I have a kid, is that kid going to turn out all right? I mean, those things do not go together, but sometimes we find ways to worry about it. 
Anxiety relentlessly kills joy. And so in this text that Curtis read for us, we're going to find the source of worry, the absurdity of worry, and the remedy to it. Let's begin with the source of worry. It it seems to me that our world is run over by worry and anxiety. Would you agree with that statement? The 20th century German existentialist, so now we're going to get deep, right? The the German existentialist had a word for it. It is the word Geworfenheit. I want you to say that together. Geworfenheit. Say it with me. Geworfenheit. You know, you say that three times and you're all just automatically in a better mood. I'm just saying. It's a beautiful word. Geworfenheit. But what does it mean? The existentialists had this, this, this way of talking about what life seemed like in the, the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And the way they described it was it felt like you're being thrown, which is what the word Geworfenheit means. It's a word that means thrownness, as in it feels like I've just been thrown into the middle of something beyond my control. Do you ever feel that way? When Ellen and I were first married... Um, Ellen came from from a a house that did not have the same appreciation as those of the Absher household had when it came to physical contact sports. And I thought that it was part of my duty as a good husband to teach Ellen how to roughhouse. Mistake. Not the first, but one of them. (laughs) We were living in California at the time, getting ready to go to Brazil. Uh, We didn't have any kids, and on Mondays that was my day off from the church, and so we would go to La Jolla Beach or to uh, Coronado Island. And um, one time, Ellen and I were out there in the water, and, um, and we were kind of starting to roughhouse a little bit as, as young newlyweds. And uh, here comes this big wave, and I had the bright idea. My wife, who only weighed about 95 pounds, why don't I pick her up and throw her into that wave? <laughs> now, Ellen is a pretty good s- swimmer and, and, a, and a, a good athlete, But that was really dumb on my part to think that she wanted anything to do with that. But I thought it was hilarious. And so I picked her up and threw her into that wave. I never did that ever again. (laughs) And to this day, I swear to you, I will never ever do it again. Because Ellen sensed in that moment, give orphan height. That she had been thrown into something more powerful than her. That's what that is. That anxiety. But it's been, the the idea of anxiety and the experience of it has been around a lot longer than that. Go all the way to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, think about creation. There is no such thing as anxiety. Anxiety, the, the, the word was not even in the dictionary. There was no such thing as anxiety or worry. Why? Because God reigned over everything and there is no such thing as sin, fallenness, death, cancer, terrorism, bad economies or unemployment. And thus, none of the things that we feel anxious about are the things that we worry about. Everybody was saying, God is here. God is in control. Why worry? He's got the whole world where? In His hands. And then in Genesis 3, Satan plants a little bit of doubt in the mind of Eve about the character and the nature of God. And what all that had to do with the presence of God in her life. And she begins to think to herself, well, 
Maybe God does not have my best interest at heart. Maybe I can do better on my own. Maybe what I really need is to be in control. I need the power that God has. And ever since then, it feels like we've been thrown into the middle of something out of our control. And get this, was never, ever, ever supposed to be in our control. Anxiety is the feeling of insecurity from from not being able to control what we were never intended to control. Anxiety is that, that sense of the rumble of panic that is underneath everything. It feels like you're being choked. There are two other places where the word for worry or anxiety in Matthew chapter 6 is found in Matthew's gospel. That word marimna, to worry excessively or to feel anxious, is used in Matthew chapter 13 to describe what the worries and the anxieties of the world do to faith. It's like thorns choking the good seed. If I were to give you a definition, a really graphic definition of anxiety, it would be anxiety is the feeling of insecurity produced by the sense of being strangled by things out of our control. You'll notice at the beginning of this text the word therefore. Therefore I say to you, do not worry. The word therefore points us back to what was just being said. And what Jesus has just taught about in verse 24 is this. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. It is about the nearness of God and idolatry and who you see God to be and how God operates in your life. And so the question comes, what do you lash your life to in both the good times and the bad times? The things that disappear, the things that don't last, the things that can be easily destroyed or taken from you, or to the one who is eternal. Dallas Willard, in his book on hearing God, has this great line that goes like this. We truly live at the mercy of our ideas This is never more true than our ideas about God. So that's the source of it. What about the absurdity of it? Jesus teaches that at the root of our worries is some wrong ideas about God. And we've, through this text where Jesus says three times, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, are a couple of proofs about God that he wants us to think about, and they come from nature. Proof number one is this, God values his creatures. He made them, he cares about them. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Jesus says, you who are worriers, you who are anxious about these things, look at the birds around you. God provides for them. God takes care of his creation. And then he gives them a rhetorical question upon which to reflect, are you not much more valuable than they? And then proof number two is God knows and meets our needs. He knows about them. God is not aloof. God is not somehow separated by a wall where he's not able to see into my life or your life. But God not only knows, but he meets our needs. And beginning in verse 28, see how the flowers of the field grow. I love the translation to say the lilies. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you. that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father, say it, your heavenly Father what? Your heavenly Father what? He knows that you need them. He knows. And what Jesus is trying to do in this text is to help people to see from the evidence around them in nature that faith is a life of confidence and contentment in the world based on trusting God. So how do you grow in this area of life? How do you become a non-anxious person who becomes this, this beautiful disruptive presence in an anxious world that's filled with worry warts? The remedy to worry is threefold, at least in this text. The first is this, expect the twist of grace. When I was growing up, I remember my dad um, giving me a, a really thorough spanking for running out into the street after he told me not to do it. I can remember at him yelling at me not to pick up snakes, especially if they had a rattle on the end of them. I can remember my mom yelling at me for running across the house with scissors. Now, little boys do not live by a safety-first principle. Little boys are happier more along the lines of safety third, you know, not safety first. And they get angry when they think that they're being raised by a bunch of boring, joyless, fun-killing, adventure-destroying parents. Until that day, they realized that those two people every day were saving their life. And then a little bit of maturity begins to sink in and you see your parents in a different light. You know, when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, it was not the easiest time to get by in Israel. Judaism was a hot mess. Rome was adding, you know, heat to that mess. They were the ones in charge, not Israel. Taxation was crippling the population. The day laborers are beginning to show up in the market uh, center squares of the villages looking for work because they were beginning to be displaced from land that had been in their property. Not the easiest time to get along. And in the midst of that really tough time, Jesus comes saying the blessing of the kingdom of God is not being withheld. The twist of grace is that sometimes our greatest experiences of God are when we trust Him to turn our valleys into mountains. When in the middle of a valley you begin to look for God and, and, and search for God and pray for God and yearn for God and desire God. And the twist of grace can take our pain and our worries and our anxieties and turn them into some of the things that we are most thankful for in this life. One of my mentors was going in for some routine shoulder surgery and the physical getting him ready for that surgery they discovered a spot on his lung turned out he had lung cancer a chemo the radiation and then taking away about a third of his right lung and he, 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 he told us about laying in the bed one night and saying I have got death inside of my body some of you know exactly what that's like and after uh all of the procedures and the surgeries, and he was declared to be cancer-free, 
we were talking about it one day. And he said, you know what the twist of all of this is? Is that I never want to go through that kind of experience ever again. But I wouldn't trade it. And how it brought me close to God and what it taught me about God and what it gave me in terms of assurances and trust of God, I would never trade anything for that. When we find ourselves in those valleys, that is the time in which we look for God most. And then the second thing is to seek God above all else. He's already been talking about what do you treasure? What as a verb, not what is your treasure, but what are you treasuring? Do you treasure up God in your heart or something that's going to be taken away? He says in verse 33, that song that we just sang, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Let me ask you, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with seeking God every day? First, don't seek when you have time. Don't seek when you have a day off. Don't seek when you have a couple of minutes. Don't seek... As, as part of your list of things to do during the day. But seek first, above all else, not second or third, but as the priority, as the preeminent seeking in your life, that that is the person of God. And all of these other things will take care of themselves. And then the last thing he says is take one day at a time. Think about your own experience of worry. How much of it had to do with just things being unknown somewhere down the future, day after day, you know, somewhere down the road? You take one day at a time. The USDA says that the average American male eats 1,996 pounds of food a year. 273 pounds of fruit, 85 pounds of fats and oils. 110 pounds of red meat, 74 pounds of chicken, 32 pounds of eggs, 31 pounds of cheese, 600 pounds of non-cheese dairy. I take that to mean bluebell ice cream. (laughs) We eat 110 pounds of red meat, but 415 pounds of vegetables. And there's other things. But 1,996 pounds, four pounds short of a ton, the average American male eats. Question, how in the world can you eat nearly a ton of food each year? You know what the answer is? You eat it one day at a time. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You, You know, I... I, I, this is such a hard sermon to preach because, you know, when you're talking about anxiety and worry, worry which is so prevalent in our world, and, and in fact, some of us don't even know it, but we're, we're, we're sort of anxiety junkies because we can't get enough of the news. And the news is just filled with anxiety-inducing information. And so we talk about, you know, expect the twist of grace, that God can take this bad moment in our life, this valley, and turn it into a mountain. We talk about seeking God, and we talk about taking it one day at a time. And what you're feeling right now is doomed. Because you're worried about worry. I mean, I just gave you something to worry about. You're going to be worried about worrying right now. 
I, I would say in closing, think back about your childhood. Lots of times when you get older in life, you think back about your childhood and those days of growing up when you had less responsibilities and you had more fun and you had what, what seemed like carefree days and worry-free days. I mean, that was true for me. I grew up with great parents. And I think I've told you the story about being in Beaver's Bend, Oklahoma, the state park there one year. And um, uh, my dad, who had uh, uh, was such a gentleman, but he had kind of a wicked sense of humor, uh, and we were three little boys. We, we were walking out at that state park one night, pitch black, couldn't see our hands in front of our face. And, and dad was talking to us, and my mom was there. She can be a witness to this. Uh, my dad's talking about, yeah, you know, there are bears all over the place. And you know what the bears like to eat? They like to eat little boys. I said, they don't like stringy, tough, old guys like me. They like tender, young guys like you three. That's why I'm not scared. And, we're, you know, my brothers and I, we thought my dad was just, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. We thought he's just tough as, you know. And then all of a sudden this gigantic sheepdog, which, by the way, looks like a small bear <laughs> in the dark, comes out of the woods. And my brothers and I, up to that point, we weren't worried about anything. We were there with Dad. But then all of a sudden here comes this, this heavy-breathing big animal coming out of the woods. We climbed right up, and all three of us were standing on top of Dad's head. <laughs> and Dad said, "What? Well, you know, if it was a bear, I couldn't have done anything because I had you idiots on top of me. <laughs> there, there's, there's just something beautiful about being in the presence of the one who takes away all your fears. To live in the presence of one that you put complete trust in, that if something comes your way that's dangerous, it's going to be okay. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, that took place when you were a kid. I mean, it's so childish to think of that. And I say, yes. What does Jesus say about the kingdom of God? You enter it like a child. Dependent and trusting that God knows what you need even before you do. And because he's loving and has proved it in all creation, he will take care of you. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you enter it like a child. And so as your minister, I just want to say, too many of you are fooling around. Too many of you are playing games with your faith and with your life. You've been given one life. And God has made himself not only available but present and has given you this, not only the the. The, the availability, but the truth of how to come into His presence. And what you're doing is fooling around when it comes to drawing near to God. And Him being in you and you being in Him. And you're fooling around with your life and then you wonder why it feels like you've been thrown into a river. And the bad times come. Today is the day for us to choose to be a non-anxious salt and light presence in the world. Not because we're strong and not because we're rich and not because we're smart or even because we're good. But we become a non-anxious presence in the world because God is here. Amen? And God is strong. Amen? God is wise and He's true and He's loving and He doesn't throw but He catches. And He will catch you. Let's stand and sing.